I see I'm going to speak on not only a few verses on Romans 4, but also um, from uh, 1 Corinthians 12. Um, I won't be speaking significantly on 1 Corinthians 12. Um, you know, as, as, as you're aware, if you've thought about these things much of the Bible, it gives three sections where it talks about the anointing, if you like, or if you like, the giftedness of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 is one of them. And really, I was thinking about this. It, 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 that's really talking about empowering gifts. Gifts that can come upon any one of us as we meet together. And that be given in the spur of the moment, in the crisis, if you like, of the moment or the, the, the characteristics of the moment we're living in, to be an immediate blessing. I'm thinking of these gifts in 1 Corinthians, this is just flipping by, so I'm not preaching on it. <laughs> um, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, the discernment of spirit, what we used to call the revelation gift. If we're alive in the spirit, you know, we, we can be given this sort of thing by God at any moment in time and speaking into the life of another who will be amazed by what has been said or revealed, the revelation gift. The, 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 the gifts that are given in the spur of the moment empowering gifts there's faith, healing, miracles empowering gifts and, and they run together of course because I can't um, do healing unless I've got faith for it I can't minister healing unless faith is running not any miracles are going to happen unless there's faith in action here so, so, so they work together, faith, healing, miracles, the power gifts. And then there is tongues, healing and prophecy. The vocal gifts, you have to open your mouth. That's what we, we found when we used to encourage people to speak in tongues. You've got to say something, you've got to move your mouth, you've got to say something to speak in a tongue. And likewise, if you're going to interpret the tongue, you know, then you've got to come up with something that's, we're all English, I think. So something that's of English to interpret what the tongue has communicated. But these are gifts that are on the spur of the moment, the empowering gifts. So that's really another topic altogether. And we'll look at that on another occasion. We've given a little bit of thought to it on Wednesday evenings and we've, we've engaged in it to a small extent. Would you, would you like to see those gifts? being released more often in, in, in a congregational meeting. I mean, I would. Because that, that's, that's how they do it. And, and the Spirit says, anyone who's got a heart to move into those gifts, eagerly desire the gifts, Paul says in those verses in, in Corinthians. Anyone who's eagerly desiring and seeking God can be released in remarkable ways to release his power. That's the nature of those gifts in Corinthians. That's Corinthians done. The Ephesians chapter 4 talks about ministry gifts. Fivefold, you know, those apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, evangelists. And they're gifts for those who have really been lifted up by the Lord to be in leadership roles within the church context. And they're encouraging those of us like ourselves 
who are just sitting around and wanting to be encouraged, into the maturity of the body. They are leadership, they are ministry gifts. So I'm not dealing with them either. But I'm dealing this morning with the gifts in Romans, which are gifts of character. Gifts of character. I do, I don't know if you maybe start on this, whether or not you were able to come on them on Wednesdays, but I really do recommend it as we're looking through Romans 12, just through the Sundays of Lent, because it's just a series of very easily digestible daily readings, which helps you to grip some of these things as we're going through it. And I'm looking forward to the other sessions as we do them week by week. And I noticed that we had Matt Summerfield has written this book on Wednesday. And I like the heading he gave to this chapter. Because he looked at the first three verses, no, first two verses, famous verses, about don't conform any longer to the pattern of the world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, those famous verses. And he said, as we read through the chapter, the three challenges that come to us of love, Three challenges. The first two verses are loving God completely. Which of course we're told to do, aren't we? That's the, the number one commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Loving with every capacity of your ability to love Him as given to us by the Holy Spirit. So love God completely. And I like the second one he put. Really the verses I'm looking at this morning because he called it Love yourselves correctly. <laughs> That's excellent. Love yourselves correctly. Have a right view of yourself. Which, very often, we don't have, actually. We can underdo it or overdo it. But we can struggle for a right view of ourselves. And... It's only really as we bring our lives under the hand of God and we're willing to be led by him that we can begin more and more to get that godly perspective of ourselves which is sufficient to take us through the, the challenges of life. So love yourselves correctly. I thought that was... Very good indeed. So that's the, really the four verses I've got here. And we're calling it being part of the body of Christ. Remember, these gifts that we're looking at this morning are to do with character. And then the final bit, which we'll be looking at later in the month, is loving each other compassionately. Compassionately. And that's really what Paul deals with in the section of the chapter from verse 9 through to the end of it. Okay, so I'll read you the five, I think it's five verses we have from Romans 12. We looked at his will a little bit last week. So here we are in verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. 
just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function so in Christ we who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others Paul develops that thinking quite a lot more in the Corinthians passage we have different gifts verse 6 according to the grace given us if a man's gift is prophesying let him use it in proportion to his faith if it is serving let him serve if it's teaching let him teach if it's encouraging let him encourage if it's contributing to the needs of others let him give generously if it's leadership let him govern diligently if it's showing mercy let him do it cheerfully so they are the life shaping gifts of character that Paul lists in this passage two phrases just stuck with me particularly as I read through and Paul begins by saying for the grace given me and then a little bit later in verse 6 he says according to the grace given us so he talks about the grace that's been given to him and then he talks about the grace which is given to us now it's pretty obvious the grace that was on the apostle Paul's life was remarkable it was something unique <laughs> if anybody other than Jesus had, had lived and moved with more grace than Paul I'd like to know that person and read about him uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God but the grace of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And, by, and his grace to me was not without effect. So I worked harder than all of them. <laughs> I wonder how we cope with that if somebody walked in and just said, I'm working harder than all of you lot. I'm doing twice as much as you lot. But we can cope with it from Paul because he, he says, It wasn't I, it was the grace of God that was with me. Um, and whether it was I or they meaning the other apostles whether it was I or they this is what we preach and this is what you believe because it stated that in the early part of the chapter <coughs> so Paul lived with a remarkable unction of grace in his life and he's saying by the grace given me I'm saying this to you now grace is a provision there are two things that God gives us in order to help us to walk in a way that honours him. <coughs> and let's just, let me just flick back in the letter to the Romans. Paul's talking about the deliverance we have in Christ Jesus back in Romans 5 and the gift that we have of life through Christ Jesus. And he says, but the gift is not like the trespass. 
If the many died by the trespass of that one, the trespass of that one, meaning Adam, of course, the sin of Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? The gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin, which one man's sin, of course, fouled it up for the rest of the human race. The judgment followed one sin, brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, this is the verse I'm arriving at, for if by the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through the one man, Adam, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Christ Jesus. So there are two things that enable us to overcome, to reign in life, as he puts it here. One is the gift of righteousness. And that's a gift. Many we come to faith in Jesus and say, Lord, <laughs> I made a mess here. I need you, Lord, please forgive me for the mess of me. Forgive my sin. Come into my life and lead me, Lord, by your spirit from this moment on. The minute we confess our need of Jesus, we're given the gift. And it's righteousness. It's a gift. It's an absolute gift. If after I've given my life to Jesus, I die the next morning, I've got his righteousness. Because I've been given the gift. That's the gift. The penitent thief didn't, he wasn't a disciple, was he? He didn't have any chance. He was stuck on the cross. But because he saw who Jesus was, because he confessed his need, his need of Jesus, and he rebuked the other one for saying what he did, for cursing in the face of Jesus, he says, Lord, may I be with you. May I be with you in your kingdom. And he, he, he understood this. How he understood this when he was on the cross? Only by the revelation of God into his life when he hung on the cross. He didn't do anything, but he received a gift of righteousness. Most of us live a long time, praise God, after we've come to faith. But it doesn't matter. You've got a gift. And it's righteousness. But there's something else, which assuming we only live quite a long time, that we need and it's the abundant provision of grace isn't it? let me read it again so I'm not guessing here how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Christ, Christ Jesus so grace is a provision and according to the way I'm living it will determine the degree to which I'm availing myself of that provision. You know, if I'm living pretty much in the flesh, you know, and doing my thing, I mean, I can believe. I can believe. But if that goes on throughout my, inverted commas, Christian life, I won't have much to show for it, will I? And that's because, you know, I'm, I'm not in a place to receive much grace. Think of it as a church, if you like. As a body of people. There can be great grace amongst us. It says of the early church, you know, just having been gathered from the, the, the ministry of Peter at Pentecost, 
And, and, and then the church was thrust into an atmosphere of Roman dominion, persecution, and of course of dominion, dominion by the religious, religious leaders, excuse me, who hated those people who began to call themselves the way or be called the way. They, they were hated at every level of society. The institution couldn't stand this, this group of people who were not institutionalized. And he said, great grace was upon them. The grace flows in the more we need it. Flows in, it's a provision. We've got the gift of righteousness. That'll save us. But we need grace if we shall live as God wants us to. Abundant provision. Think of the, you know, that's where the, the grace of God was flowing in the early church. It says, great grace was upon them. Think, if you like, of the church in Laodicea. It was too wealthy. It was lukewarm. You know, the final church in Revelation that um, the angel spoke to with those messages, prophetic messages to each church. And Laodicea was a church where you could come in and you could go you probably wouldn't feel the grace of God because they've got it together themselves. <laughs> see, see what I mean? This grace is, is, is amazing. And I, and I love that sort of feeling as I came to this chapter because there's a fluidity about this chapter that we need the, the anointing of God's Spirit to, to, to grasp where we are within all of this and to make the most of our lives as we seek to develop the character, remember these are character gifts, we want to make the most of our lives that Jesus has given to us. So Paul says, by the grace given me, which in his case, as I've said, was pretty significant, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought. Don't be cocky, in other words. Don't be big-headed. You know, Peter was a bit like that one. He was the first man to speak and he came up with some really bombastic stuff. Uh, as he was a disciple with the others, he was always the first one to express a viewpoint. But my word, his experiences moderated that drastically within him, didn't they? There was denials, threefold denials, and when he wept, he wept. Because he behaved as he had and betrayed Jesus as he had. That was a breaking for Peter. We need breaking on the way through, friends. A broken and a contrite heart you will not despise. David got broken. We all get broken on the way through. But there's nothing wrong with that. It's wonderful. I need the old flesh bit, my will, to be broken before I can really apply myself to the will of God. But think of yourself with sober judgment. In accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. You see, that's a dynamic, a measure of faith. Sometimes I can be flowing fairly well in faith, I think. And other times I can feel as if it's drained out of me. You know, and we're all like that. But Paul is saying, come on, get a grip. <laughs> You've been given a gift of righteousness. There's a provision of grace here. My purpose for all of us, and especially for us as a congregation, is that we're going to overcome. 
He didn't cause together to just sit here in service. He's did he. He's got a purpose for us. And we want to tap into that and soak in as much grace as we can possibly soak. <laughs> Don't we? <laughs> Think of yourself with sober judgment. In accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each one of us has one body, and he talks about the body with members, it, you know, if you read Corinthians and this, he talks about fingers and arms and eyes and ears and all that sort of stuff, as the body is made up of all these different parts, but they're all working most of the time reasonably well. You know, we're here, we've got here somehow. <laughs> Sorry, Caleb, I know you've got a bit of healing to go on. But for the most part, we're reasonably mobile and active and able as people. I thank God for that, don't you? Well, I do. And the older I get, the more I thank him. <laughs> oh. One body with many members. And these members do not all have the same function. Pretty obvious, isn't it? So in Christ, we who are many form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. I think this is why, particularly in the West, we can often struggle a bit with all this stuff, because the reality is really, by and large, most of us, probably all of us in measure, are pretty self-sufficient. You know, we've got a roof over our heads. We've got income coming in. We've got the ability to achieve things, do things, whatever. And we've learned how to provide for ourselves in measure on the way through. So there's a, there's a good degree of self-sufficiency within us. In the body of Christ, particularly as we read it in the early times of, of Christian fellowship, in the early chapters of the Acts of the Apostles, my word, they needed each other. They lived together. <laughs> they got a grip of this need of one friend. And I know we realise that. And I know it happens in measure. But it's good to reflect on this, that these folk, if we're really going to see something of the dynamic of the Spirit of God within us, it's going to cause us to realise, for me, that I'm dependent on you. And in measure, you're dependent on me. But we're dependent on each other. It's a crucial realisation. We're not just here to sit through a service Sunday morning and go home and do our own stuff. Are we? You know, and that's what they... By the grace that's given... Paul's realised this. He's planted churches all over the place. And he knows that these people are called to be in, in a dynamic of fellowship one with another. Each member belongs to all the others. So the second bit, verses 6 to 8, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. Now the more we flow in these gifts, the more we will receive grace to enable us. And that's undeserved favour. However you want to put it. There's some lovely day-by-day um, -day meditations on this stuff. I do recommend it. 
If, so I'm going to look at each one of these gifts. The grace given. So if a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If you're given to bringing words in church and they have a prophetic dimension, well, there is a mighty challenge in that. Because it requires that one has sought God before bringing those words. It requires that there's an intimacy with God. It requires that there is, has been something of a meeting with God. And it requires that I understand what is going on within the context of the body of people and why they're in the place they are now. In other words, I need hindsight to realise why they've come to this place now, and I need insight to understand why they are here, and I need that sense of foresight to understand what God is saying as to how they will develop. That is essentially the ministry of the prophet. I've put, I, I just wrote things, I made some notes this morning, and I put just a requirement for each one of these gifts. I mean, obviously, just one word, and there's much else that could be said. But requirement, if we're to flow in these gifts, and if a prophecy requires courage. It requires courage because the prophetic ministry is quite a lonely ministry. If you read the prophets in the Old Testament, <laughs> you'll see the challenges that came into their lives in order to minister in the way that they did, in order to say the things that they said. It requires, yes, a meeting with God, but it required courage for them to minister in the way that they were called to do it. And a prophecy requires courage. Each one of the Old Testament prophets, whether they were writers or, you know, many mentioned who weren't writers, but needed that dimension in order to fulfill their ministry. The prophet's like the one who goes before. A bit like, I used to, there was an old western I used to watch when I was young called Wagon Train. You're not old enough to remember that. Wagon Train. And there was a scout. His name was Flint McCulloch. Flint McCulloch always used to go in front of the train, you know, looking for Indians here, there and everywhere, in order to keep the wagon train, you know, safe in order to keep them informed as to which way they needed to take to avoid the blessed Cherokees or whoever they were. And so the prophet's out on his own doing this stuff. And he's got to sense where the Lord is taking folk in order to communicate that in a way that is of God. And very often, my word, it can be learned. All the, all the Old Testament prophets, the writers, they spoke of the need for repentance. They saw the wrongness in society and they spoke into that and addressed it. And that's an important part of the prophetic ministry. You know, you, that's why you've got to be close to God. And if we're saying this sort of casually, there's no anointing. It comes from one who has touched the heart of God somehow. And it can reach into our lives to bring about a change. The prophetic word, when it's given in passion and with anointing, can bring about change in a way that nothing else could. To bring the benefits of God. 
So prophecy requires courage. Serving requires selflessness. Requires selflessness. I noticed that Jane in her announcement this morning said, we need a few more ladies to help serve. Uh, you know, when you had to go pastoring the church for a good number of years, I was assistant for six years, then pastored down at Whiteley for 24, so I've done it for 30 years. You're pretty alive to what's going on. And it's lovely the way that we serve each other here. I just happened to walk in yeah, last Sunday afternoon. And Olivia was doing this, lovely illustration. And Christy was doing this lovely illustration. In other words, it prepared, and of course, just put the paint on. Conceive that they want to put the paint on. You know, this work, this vision, this energy goes into that sort of provision which they've got to be made available to us. And it goes across right across the body. I, th- I think we've got, you know, I'm encouraged by the way I see folks serving. And of course, within a small church like that, and we're a bit small this morning, but there ain't any room for seat warmers, is there? <laughs> Which is a good thing. You know, I, I could go to, we went to King's Church once, around Burgess Hill a few months ago. But I could easily go and sit there every Sunday morning and just do nothing and walk out. But you can't come in here and do nothing and walk out. <laughs> somebody will give you a cup of tea and a bacon sandwich. And somebody will talk to you. Simon gets here and leads you to faith straight away. But things happen in a small church. Because, as I said, I like that phrase, there are no seat warmers. That's excellent. That's excellent. I thought in, in Acts, you know, those excellent guys were chosen because it was getting too much for the apostles. So they, they chose what those group of men to wait on tables. In other words, do you remember what the. What time? Ooh, time's, time's running on. Do you remember what. The, <laughs> I'm just, just getting into the, into the game. <laughs> Do you remember what the qualification was to, to wait on tables? Anybody remember what the qualification was to wait on tables? Well, you had to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. I tell you, if you're waiting on tables on Thursday evening, you've got to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. You best get prayer before you come, isn't it? You know, that, but that's the level of spirituality of the early church. But they were committed to serving. Because none of them were self-sufficient. They were dependent on the other. Teaching. Teaching requires discipline. It requires the Holy Spirit to teach us before we can teach others. I'm going to push through a bit here. It requires that we do it out of passion and commitment. I just noticed what Matt Summerfield had written about the gift of teaching. He says, while some of us might have a genuine sense of calling and gifting as teachers, all of us are learning lessons about faith and life that we can share with others. We can be great teachers of others when we love God and believe wholeheartedly in our message, know and communicate our message well by taking time to study and pray about it, 
live out our message through our actions and by loving people, allow the power of the Holy Spirit to ultimately bring powerful transformation. There's nothing worse than somebody trying to teach, whether in a, this sort of context, or, or even in an ordinary secular sort of class, and it's got no enthusiasm for it as a subject. There's nothing worse, is it? But particularly in a spiritual context, we need to be in love with God, don't we? When we need to be reaching out for a love for one another. Don't we? And the teacher... See, teaching is different than prophecy. Prophecy would come more within the preaching realm. You, you, you can, to a certain extent, fly from the hip when you're preaching. Um... To a certain extent, you can improvise a bit more. Because really, you want, you want people dead at the end of the meeting so that they can be raised up by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you can really go for that if you're preaching. But teaching requires scholarship. Teaching requires that we really get before the Lord. To get into the Word with a little, a little bit of depth. And passion. So it's a calling. As all these things are callings. Teaching. Encouraging requires empathy. Empathy, I, I, I looked it up, because I think I know what it means, but sometimes it can, it can just open your eyes a little bit more to look up the, the dictionary de definition. Empathy equals identifying oneself with another at a mental or, in a case like this, spiritual level identifying oneself with another in order to encourage them, in order to bless them. Barnabas was a great encourager. And it says that as we read on him through the Acts of the Apostles and how that he was a great encourager in the church at Antioch. And we see how he developed that gift as he was teaching the church. Uh, as he led that church before he invited Saul to come along. He says, news of this, all that was happening at, uh, at Antioch, reached ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, the grace flowing in this church, away from Jerusalem, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. He was a great encourager, and encourages us to do the same, to give each other courage. You know? We have to watch what we say, we have to watch what we speak, in order to speak those things which are life-giving and not death-defying. Encouraging. Contributing requires Kindness. Well, however we contribute, we might contribute for a tithe, we might contribute for random offerings here, there and everywhere. But, you know, Luke put it brilliantly, didn't he? In his Gospel. About giving and exactly what it means for us. To give generously and the challenge of that. He said, give and it will be given to you. Give. We have to give in faith so that the Lord can give to us. It's our initiative given, it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, 
Again, it's the measure, the measure. The measure you use, so it will be measured to you. I remember at one time in my life, fairly early in my own walk of faith, I'd taken particular steps, particularly in regard to finances. And we came to the place where we were just trusting the Lord for everything we needed for housekeeping. I had a bit of money, so I thought, oh, it'll last a few months, you know. But that money went sooner sooner than ever I thought it would. And uh, the weekend that we ran out of money, we had the first ever gift. First ever gift from another believer, because I did some ministry with him. And he gave us a money gift. Just as we'd run out of money. And since then, it's just the Lord taught us through that. But we've, you might say, oh, that was lucky. Well, it probably was to a degree. But it's happened so many times, as it has with some of you, I know. I'll tell you this, the Lord knows my bank account. <laughs> he does. If he knows every hair that's on my head, he certainly knows what I've got in the bank. He knows about the sparrows, and he says, you're far, worth far more than many sparrows. He knows every detail about us contributing. But we have to initiate. We have to do it. Leadership. Have you got this one? Property requ- uh, property requires courage. Serving requires selflessness. Teaching requires discipline. Encouraging requires empathy. Contributing requires kindness. Leadership requires integrity. I'll look that up. And it means integrity means a moral wholeness. Wow. Now, none of us, none of us stand up here, I can say this, because I know it's true, is totally morally whole. We all have holes here and there, you know, the holes that you can spear a little bit. Uh, but we, we're called to be whole, W-H-O-L-E. Um, and that's what integrity means, and this is what we're seeking for. Having seen many leaders in action, I've got an idea, when you listen to a person speak, you can get an idea where he is coming from. You can even get an idea of some of his weaknesses. I don't know what you're thinking about me this morning, but you can get an idea of my weaknesses just by listening to me speak. I'm not Jesus. I'm not perfect. But I'm after integrity, which is a, a moral wholeness. And that's what leaders are reaching out for. All the other gifts, by the way, can flow out of a leader. He can prophesy, he can serve, he can teach, he can encourage, he can contribute, and this is what he's required to do. The apostle is a superb leader because he's given a a leadership which is um, over a large area. He may be given leadership of a good number of churches. And the apostle can function in those other ministry gifts I quoted to you from Ephesians. He can evangelize when need to. He can pastor when need to. He can teach when need to. He can prophesy when he needs to. That's the gift of the apostle. But leadership requires integrity. And we need a closeness with those who can speak into our lives as leaders and who can move us on. You might think that like those who teach, Simon, Alan's elder, Graham, you might, I don't know. Um, but you might think that we're the guys who are doing the discipling. Not a bit of it. 
You're discipling me as well. <laughs> we disciple each other. And only Jesus sort of discipled his disciples in a sense on his own. Because the other didn't really know what was going on. He had to teach them as our leader. And he had the understanding they didn't. But in situations of discipling, as we are called to do it, you're called to disciple me. Encourage me. And I'm called to disciple you. Encourage you. It works both ways. These are character gifts, see. It's developing our characters. And a leader encourages relationships. In my latter years at the church, I encouraged that, or I understood that far more. That the key thing is to encourage quality of relationships. That we know each other. We care for one another. We speak to one another with healthy, life-giving words relate relate to each other. And that's a thing that the leader can bring about. Leadership requires integrity and mercy requires compassion. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. How are we doing? Give me five more minutes. Because one thing, I felt, I felt a heaviness this week. And it's largely because of this Ukraine thing that we keep seeing, we keep seeing, and it's in our faces. I can almost cope with Afghanistan. You know, you pray, and you think, well, we pray now, let's get on with life. Because Afghanistan, it was the Taliban who were you know, rearing their ugly heads and taking control, this and the other. And it feels a bit too distant for me to really, you know, feel as if it's in my face. I'll pray, I'll pray about Afghanistan. It's distant. But this, Joe Biden saying this week, if we impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine, we're into World War Three. And he's right. He's right. JFK actually took on Bulgarian Khrushchev, I don't know if anybody in the early 60s, didn't he? And, and, and he won that little face-off. But these days, Russia is too powerful. And we don't take Russia on. The costs are potentially too great. Uh, you know, and how do you get NATO together, all these countries? And a unified force to resist Russia. How do, how do we link in with what America is feeling? And, and we, we can't get a viable opposition to dissuade the Kremlin and Putin from what they are doing. Yes, sanctions are biting. Many Russian people, I do believe, are against what's happening. But many are not exposed to the knowledge of what's happening because obviously uh, Russia has, you know, Close down social media from other Western nations. So that's that's in our face, and I'm challenged by this. Yeah, I like to pray when we saw that just a few days ago that dreadful, dreadful convoy of tanks and whatever moving into Kiev. I just got spiritually authority. I, you know, I, I haven't mentioned this to anybody else, but I commanded in my own spirit that that horrible convoy would not reach Kiev. But the Lord would somehow frustrate it, that he would do what he needed to do 
to dismember and dismantle a whole wretched queue of tanks and destroying equipment. And I was led to read into the Isaiah prophecy in chapter 50. Just, just quickly on this. You remember that Isaiah, in the early part of his ministry, he actually touched the Lord, didn't he? He touched the Lord, and he had this vision of the Lord in the temple. And there was seraphim above him in the temple. And those seraphim came down, and they were singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. And, and he was taken into this realm of heavenly worship. And you would think that he was just revered what was going on. And he was caught up into the purity of what was going on. That this was a, a moment of intimacy with him in the presence of God. You would think that. Because it wasn't. He got convicted of his own sin. He said, I'm seeing the king here. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. And the only thing that can happen to me is that I'm now going to die. If the unclean tries to touch that which is clean, it dies. But of course, the seraphim came down, got a tongue of live coal from the altar, and put it on the prophet's lips. And he said, with this coal, your sin is atoned for, your guilt is taken away. And Isaiah's sin... It's uncleanness. And he, dwell, he dwells in a people of uncleanness. And how much do we absorb from the people with whom we're living? The unbelieving world in which we have contact, how much do we absorb from the indifference to God that goes on with that unbelieving world? Quite a lot, if we're real. But the Lord then said to him, who will go for me? And he says, what else could he say? I'll go. I'll go. But later on, probably another 50 years later on in the guy's ministry, in chapter 50, the same man of unclean lips said this, the Sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue. <laughs> he knew how to speak. To know the word that sustains the weary. Think of the encouragement of that. Think of the strength of that ministry. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. He's opened my ears and I've not been rebellious, I haven't drawn back. He says words that are very, very much a foreshadowing of Jesus. But they're also part of his experience as well. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I didn't hide my face from mocking and spitting. Because the Sovereign Lord helps me. I won't be disgraced. And it reminded me of these, these courageous people we see in Ukraine, many of whom seem to have a living faith. Because the Sovereign Lord helps them, they will not be disgraced. They've set their face like flint, and they know they will not be put to shame. He who vindicates them is near. Who will bring charges against them? Let the bringer of charges face them. Who is going to accuse them? Let them confront 
that confronts those Ukrainians. It's the sovereign Lord who helps them. It's just me putting the prophetic edge on these words. Who is he that will condemn them? They will all wear out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. My word, there's not much light shining in Ukraine at the moment, is there? Let him who walks in the dark and who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. But now all you who light fires, I can see those bombs dropping that we've been seeing on the news all week. Blocks of flats being ruined. People dying. But now all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go walk in the light of your fires. And of the torches you've set ablaze, this is what you will receive from my hand, as the hand of God. You will lie down in torment. And look, I tell you, those responsible for this will be accountable to God. I don't know how long it'll take, I don't know when it will happen, but they are accountable. Vladimir Putin is accountable to God. I don't know. What happened to Muammar Gaddafi? What happened to Saddam Hussein? They paid the price for their lifestyles. So will Putin. I don't know how long it'll take, but I've got it here. You who light fires, go walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you've set ablaze, because this is what you'll receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. And I think that's why I felt at heaviness these days, you know, these latter few days. Particularly I was preparing that word, and the Lord just led me into that prophecy of Isaiah. That a man with unclean lips became the man with an instructed tongue. That's what he can do for every one of us, friends. By his grace, working within us. To the glory of Jesus. Amen.